0: Welcome to a Badass Study Podcast, a podcast where you can study while doing whatever. I'm your host, Hannah Dollinger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of a Badass Study Podcast. I hope everyone is doing fantastic and is not bored out of the... Wow, I can't even talk is not bored out of their minds. If you are an essential worker, thank you. We seriously need you all, especially um, healthcare workers and um, people in the grocery store and everyone who is doing their part to keep us sane and um, taken care of. So if you know someone who's an essential worker, thank them today. Um, This has nothing to do with our topic today. So today we are covering task list item B3, which states to systematically arrange independent variables to demonstrate their effects on dependent variables. I am, of course, I know I say this every single episode, and I know that I say that I say it's about every single episode, but I'm excited about this topic. So let's first cover some basics. Um, So the task list item states to arrange independent variables to demonstrate their effects on dependent variables. So, what are those? Um, So, the independent variable is the variable that is under study and is being manipulated. So, remember, the independent variable is independent, it's not influenced by anything, therefore, it is literally independent. Um, then there's the dependent variable which is the variable that is changing contingent on the manipulation of the independent variable and is being actively measured and recorded. So again remember the dependent variable is dependent on the independent variable. So this is normally um, a behavior of study in our field um, but the dependent variable is typically a behavior which makes sense. We are measuring behavior all the time. And then the independent variable is usually, um, you know, is some, some kind of treatment. Okay, so the task list states to, again, systematically arrange the independent variable to demonstrate effects on the dependent variable. So how in the world do we do that? When you're planning for any treatment or intervention, the goal is experimental control. Remember that. The goal is experimental control. So what is experimental control and how do we achieve that? Cooper defines experimental control as being achieved when a predictable change in behavior, the dependent variable, is reliably produced by the systematic manipulation of some aspect of the environment or the independent variable. And Cooper also states that an experiment that shows convincingly changes in the dependent variable are a function of the independent variable and not the result of uncontrolled or unknown variables is said to have a high degree of internal validity. So basically experimental control is the extent to which an independent variable and only the independent variable causes changes in the dependent variable internal validity is the extent to which we know that the manipulation of the IV was the only cause of the changes in the DV. So experimental control equals high internal validity, which therefore demonstrates a functional relation. A functional relation, remember, is basically uh, changes in x- or wait, yeah, manipulation of x caused changes of y. So we have internal validity. So it, is there external validity? Um yeah. So external validity is defined as is defined by Cooper um, as the degree to which a study's results are generalizable to other subjects, settings and or behaviors. I'm not going to talk much about this because it's really not a part of this task list item, but it's still important to know that there is external validity, and you do need to know that for the exam. External validity is the degree to which a treatment from a study um, generalizes to other subjects, settings, or participants, or behaviors, because subjects and participants are the same thing. So, subjects, settings, behaviors. Okay, so... How do we systematically arrange the IV to show effects on the DV? Well, we have to consider extraneous variables and confounding variables and then arrange our intervention in a way that controls for those variables. So extraneous variables, as defined by Cooper, are any aspect of the experimental setting, for example, lighting or temperature, that must be held constant to prevent unplanned experimental variation. So let's say that you're conducting a study on differential reinforcement methods and you're comparing differential reinforcement of an incompatible behavior with differential reinforcement of an other behavior. And you usually have the same implementer for each procedure. So you're typically holding constant the same implementer. Well, one day, um, let's say you're implementing this in the school setting. Well, one day your teacher is absent and she's your main implementer. So you have, you have a sub implementing the procedures, and maybe you see a huge increase in problem behavior. The implementer should be held constant. Um, I understand that things happen, but we've got to control for things the best that we can. We've got to control for those extraneous variables as best we can. So um, if I were conducting a study and doing it in the schools, if my teacher was absent, I just wouldn't implement the procedures that day. So we talked about extraneous variables. Now, what are confounding variables? Confounding variables are defined by Cooper as uncontrolled variables known or suspected to exert an influence on the dependent variable. So, these are environmental stimuli that are related to your independent variable that could end up impacting your dependent variable. So, this could be medication changes, Um, your participants are sick, Um, maybe your participant didn't have breakfast that morning, or um, didn't get enough sleep last night, so they're extra grumpy today and you see a higher rate of problem behavior than normal. So um, let's say that you're conducting a study on functional communication training and you're comparing two different methods to teach it in the most efficient or the quickest way possible. So you've given your participants' parents strict instructions not to practice FCT or run trials at home for now. But participant, one, participant one's babysitter was running trials with him the other night and didn't get that memo. And now participant one is showing rapid acquisition of FCT with both methods. Um, so that would be an example of a confounding variable. So we're going to talk about some threats to internal validity, which um, basically those extraneous and those confounding variables can become threats to our internal validity. And there are several kinds of threats to internal validity. And I'm going to be quoting or not quoting, but I'm going to be talking um, a lot about this. All this information came from my textbook, um, Single Case Research Methodology by Ledford and Gass, which I'll Obviously, of course, um, put that citation in the show notes for you if you are interested in learning more about this stuff. And if you are taking um, a single case design research class, you'll you'll probably reference this book at some point. Um, this is the book that I use to study single case. Um, or your professor might have a different textbook. Anyways, um, so let's take a quick break, and then we will talk all about our threats to internal validity. Uh, yeah. Okay, so let's just do a quick review before we get into the threats to internal validity. We've got extraneous variables, which again are any aspect of the experimental setting, for example, lighting or temperature that must be held constant to prevent unplanned experimental variation. And then we've got our confounding variables, which are uncontrolled variables known or suspected to exert an influence on the dependent variable. So again, These are environmental stimuli related to your, or most likely related to your independent variable that could impact your dependent variable or they're related to your dependent variable. Um, So if you are studying any effect of any treatment on problem behavior and your client gets a new medication added to the regimen and one of the side effects is increased aggression, then that would be a confounding variable. So, Again, these extraneous and confounding variables can become threats to our internal validity and can decrease um, our level of internal validity. So there are lots of threats to internal validity. Um, First one is history, which is any event outside of the study or intervention that influences the behavior. So for example, um, I touched on this like literally 10 seconds ago, medication changes. So how do we... So remember, the task list item states that we have to systematically arrange our independent variables to demonstrate their effects on the dependent variables. So why are we even talking about threats to validity? Um. So we've got to make sure that we are creating and designing a study that is able to control for threats to internal validity so that we're able to systematically show our independent variable had an effect on the dependent variable, and that it was truly the changes in the independent variable that caused the changes in the dependent variable. So if we had, um, let's go back to our medication example. If we are um, studying effects of this one treatment on reduction of problem behavior, If all of our participants at some point had the same medication change, that's going to look like it was the medication change that caused the decrease in problem behavior. So it's important that we know how that we can control for these threats so that we can truly say, hey, we had high internal validity. We controlled for all of these threats. There's clearly experimental control here and we've got a functional relation. Um, and it's really, it's not possible to control for every single threat. Um, you've just got to do the best you can. So back to history. So how do we control for history, which is, again, any event outside of the study or intervention that influences behavior, for example, medication changes, or dude's tired, or, again, dude didn't get breakfast that morning. Um, I recently had a student who had a baby, like there was a new baby in the family. Um, so like things like that, there's just nothing that we can do to, to control for that. No, there, there are things that we can do to control for that, but I mean, a baby, we can't control for that. (laughs) So we can help to control for the threat of history by using a time-lagged introduction of the intervention. And there are certain experimental designs that do that, like multiple baseline and multiple probe, which we'll talk about in a later episode. Um, But you can use a time-lagged intervention. You can also withdraw the intervention and reintroduce the intervention using a withdrawal design or an ABAB design which again, we'll talk about in future episodes. And keep communication open with parents and caregivers. Um, So my student that had a baby, or the student did not have a baby, but his mom had a baby. Um, He engaged in high rates of aggression. So we were a little bit concerned about how mom having a baby at home was going to impact that. So but we kept communication open with mom and when she was, you know, having the baby and what days um, student was going to be out. Um, you can also talk with parents about like, hey, um, we are running a study in this classroom, like after you get consent and all that. And um, you can tell them, like, please don't practice um, spontaneous communication at home or like, please don't practice trying to elicit spontaneous communication Please let us know if you're doing any medication changes, anything like that. Okay, so next one is maturation. So it is as it sounds. It's the normal developmental process of the individual that can affect behavior change. So things like puberty, um, things like if you're doing early intervention, those kids grow fast and a lot of stuff is going on. So it's just the natural thing. Um, Developmental process that affects behavior change. So, how the heck do we control for that? (laughs) Um, Similar to previous threats, so similar to history, you can use a time lagged introduction of the intervention. You can withdraw and reintroduce the intervention, or you can use brief interventions. Um, So, if you are if you are concerned about your participant hitting puberty or something, you know, just do it for like a couple months or so, if you can. Um, okay, next one is testing. So this refers to the influence on behavior that repeated testing has. So if you're being tested multiple times on the same thing, you may either end up learning some stuff or the test itself might become aversive. I mean, how annoying is it to be tested on the same thing over and over again, especially if you don't know it, like if you are collecting baseline data, um, think about having to test someone over and over and over again during baseline and you're not even telling them what's right or wrong, you're just testing them like that does not sound fun. So testing can either be facilitative or inhibitive. Facilitative would be when repeated testing could improve the results um, or you could have an inhibitive effect which decreases performance. So they're obviously opposites. So how do you control for that? you can use probes instead of testing repeatedly. And a probe, um, we'll talk about more in depth in later episodes, but a probe is basically, um, so say you're collecting baseline data, you're doing a multiple probe instead of multiple baseline. Um, So in a multiple baseline, you're collecting Baseline data every single day for every single session. So when you look at your abscissa on the um, where it shows all your sessions, you've got a data point for sessions one, two, three, four, and five. But if you're doing multiple probe, then you're not testing every single day, you're just kind of probing for the information. Um, So again, if you look at your sessions for sessions one, two, three, and four, wow, I can't talk one, two, three, four, and five, you might have a probe during sessions two and five instead of one through five. Um, You can also introduce the data collection mechanisms before you begin the study so that they're familiar with it, and you can test as little as possible, which is hard when you're trying to collect data for your baseline phase. Um, So again, multiple probe, I think, would be your best bet for controlling for that threat. All right, next one up, we've got instrumentation. So, instrumentation is the mechanical failure or human error which leads to inaccurate data recording. So, when I did my thesis, I used Fitbits to record my participants' step counts. And um, let's say, well, actually, this did happen one time. One of my participants just took their Fitbit off um, halfway through the day. So it looked like he had like 2,000 steps when in reality he really could have had 8,000. I have no idea because he took his Fitbit off halfway halfway through the day. So that was an instrumentation error or maybe the Fitbits just stopped working. That would be an instrumentation error. Error. So uh, an example of this could also be Observer Drift. Remember when... This is when your observer begins to fade away from the original definition of the behavior that you're studying. That would be human error, leading to inaccurate data recording. You could also have poor training, Um, so maybe you didn't train your data collectors properly and therefore they're not collecting data accurately. So how do you control for instrumentation? Well, uh, collect IOA data so that you make sure all of your observers are on the same page with the uh, definitions and we'll end with collecting data, but this way you can detect observer drift. Retrain your observers if needed and make sure your definition is clear and that there are no questions before data collection begins. Okay, next one is procedural infidelity. This occurs when, there's no, when there is an inaccurate implementation of the procedures as you plan for them. If this happens, it needs to be noted immediately so that it can be fixed immediately. So let's say, for example, if you are running a study on the effectiveness of teacher implementation of a differential reinforcement procedure. You've written your procedures clearly. They're beautiful. Wow, you're so impressed, but you're not running them. So you train your teacher. Then you are observing the teacher implement the plan and you see that the teacher is doing a step wrong. That's in, that's procedural infidelity. So how do you control for this? This is controlled for by observing like you just were and calculating the percentage of correct steps for sessions. So you probably have, um, well, you would have like a data sheet of your own for procedural fidelity with a task analysis of each step of your procedure And then you would uh, check or minus if the procedure was done correctly or not, and then calculate the percentage, and then you would report this in your study. You should be doing procedural uh, fidelity sessions for a minimum of 20% of all of your sessions, and you should do it for each component um, or condition of your treatment Next is attrition. So, this is when your participants drop out of your study. So, for example, maybe one of your participants, well, again, I can't talk. Um, It's a rough day, you guys. Um, One of your participants might move or decide that they just don't want to participate anymore, which happens. Um, So, you would control for this by communicating with the teacher or parents or whatever caregiver well in advance about any future plans. So, This could be, um, you could have a perfect participant picked out and then you talk to mom and dad and, well, they're actually going to be moving in a couple of months or they're going on a long vacation in a couple of months. Um, So it's important to check with the caregivers to make sure that there's nothing going on in the future that might uh, disrupt data collection. You can also check their attendance records. And you should have at least four participants in the event that one of them drops out. Then you still have three, which is a great number to have. You can also use socially valid intervention. So parents are likely, they, they've got buy-in. They're likely to keep participants in the study. All right. Then we've got multiple treatment interference. So this is the effect of one treatment on behavior being influenced by another treatment in the same study. This can happen when you are comparing multiple interventions during one study. So you, there are a couple effects that this can have. So there's um, sequencing effect, which is when the order of interventions influence the effects. Um, And then there's carryover effects, which is when the order of interventions is not what's influencing things, but rather there's still a relation between adjacent conditions. So it might seem like, so if you're running a functional analysis, um, if you are doing like escape for one and then you're doing attention, it could look like your attention condition is still the escape condition. So you could be having some carryover effects. So how do you control for this? you clearly define each condition and then counterbalance your conditions which is when you have one participant maybe um, have the order of interventions like abc abc and then you have another participant have their order of interventions like acb acb so it doesn't look like the order of the intervention is what caused the change in behavior okay we've also got Data instability as a threat to internal validity. This is literally as it sounds. Your data are not stable or they're highly variable. This can indicate that there's another confounding variable at play and that you don't have experimental control. Um, So how do you control for this? You can vary your condition lengths across time and extend your data collection. So with my thesis, um, again, I did trying to like giving a goal a step goal, and then seeing how that impacted total daily step counts for my participants. And my data were so variable, especially during baseline. It took so long to see stable data in my baseline condition. So I had to extend my data collection and it went way longer than I thought it would um finally we have adaptation which is when the participant's behavior differs from the true natural behavior due to novel conditions so for example you get a call from a teacher that this one student is super aggressive and you go to observe and he is a beautiful angel and it's because he knows you're in the room that is actually an example of hawthorne effect which again is when the participant's be observed behavior isn't representative of the natural behavior because they know that they're part of a study or they know they're being observed. Um, so how to control? Actually, let me back up. Let me give you another example. Um, so whenever we had clients come in and the severe behavior for running a functional analysis, um, we saw a lot of adaptation. So. We saw we were getting reports of like high levels of problem behavior in the home and then we'd bring them into our clinic to do an assessment and a functional analysis and we just didn't get the same levels of problem behavior that mom and dad were reporting because they don't know our clinic. This is a totally new clinic to them. Um, they've got new people in the room, new people that they're interacting with. They're not going to do the same stuff that they do when mom and, when mom and dad are there. Um, So, how do you control for that? So, you can familiarize the participant with the experimental conditions. Um, You could go sit in the room for a while. You could take data across multiple days. um, With your classroom example, you could sit in the classroom or get familiar with the participant for several sessions before you even start taking baseline data. Um, My friend did, or two of my actual cohort members or uh like they were two girls in my cohort they were doing their thesis theses on um functional analysis versus versus the isca which is the interview informed synthesized contingency analysis which as it sounds combines all contingencies into one so instead of where there's an fa where you do um control condition you do a uh Gosh, I'm blanking. You do a control condition, intention condition, escape condition, and then a tangible condition in the ISCA. You combine all of those conditions into one test condition. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Um, but they were doing, I think they did like six, there are four or six different assessments with each participant. So each participant either went through two or three rounds of the ISCA, and also two or three rounds of the functional analysis. And um, so once they were kind of getting used to seeing us and they were used to our clinic, we did start seeing higher rates of problem behavior. So they did they controlled for that well because you did get to see a true repre- representation of their levels of problem behavior. And then it might not have been what Similar to like what was going on at home, but it was still we were we were seeing um, higher levels of problem behavior, which we weren't before when we first did the couple, the first couple assessments. All right, let's wrap it up and give you what you need to know for the exam. So. Again, list item B3 states to systematically arrange the independent variables to demonstrate their effects on dependent variables. You need to know what the independent and dependent variables are. Remember, independent variable is the one that is independent and is being manipulated, and the dependent variable is the one that is dependent on the independent variable, and that's the behavior that you are measuring, or the variable that you're measuring. Um, So, the goal, remember, is what? Experimental control. And experimental control is basically when you can show that the dependent variable reliably produced changes in the independent variable. Oh gosh, I really mixed that up. Experimental control is when you can reliably show that the independent variable had changes on the dependent variable which leads us to internal validity. If you've got experimental control, you've got high internal validity. And how do we control for our extraneous and confounding variables, which become threats to internal validity? We've got history, which is anything outside of the study that influences behavior. We've got maturation, which is the normal developmental process of the individual that affects behavior. We've got testing, which is the repeated testing and the impact that has on behavior. We've got instrumentation, the mechanical failure or human error that leads to inaccurate data collection. Procedural infidelity, when there is inaccurate implementation of the procedures. Attrition, your participants drop out. Multi-treatment interference, the effect of one treatment on behavior being influenced by another treatment in the same study data instability. As it sounds, your data are not stable. They are highly variable. And last, we've got adaptation. Participant's behavior differs from the true natural behavior because of novel conditions. So you will need to know that for the exam. You should be familiar with how to control for each threat to internal validity as well. If you want more information, um, I referenced two textbooks this time. I'm getting crazy. Um, I referenced Cooper and I will, of course, put the page numbers in the show notes. There are a lot of page numbers for this one because there was a lot of terms that you needed to know. Um, and I also referenced the Ledford and Gas text, which I'll put the citation and page numbers in the show notes as well. Um, so I'm thinking about coming out with some practice questions on the Instagram. and. Um, So I'm going to, I'll actually be getting my wisdom teeth out tomorrow. So I'm pre-recording this. Um, So I will probably be so, so bored and um, put together some practice questions. Or maybe I'll just zone out and watch TV. I don't know. Um, If you want to contact me, of course, email at podcast at gmail.com with corrections, feedback. Um, if you just want to say hi, I'd love to talk to you about ABA. Um, you can also check out the Instagram at ABA study podcast. And um, I had someone reach out and give positive uh, reinforcement, like some really good feedback about how, how this has helped motivate her. And guys, I am so happy. Um, that's the kind of feedback I'm looking for. Um, on the next episode, I am going to be talking about obviously taskless item four, but I was not prepared and didn't put it. Oh, it's withdrawal and reversal designs, yay, um, that is what I used for my thesis, so I obviously am so excited as I am for every topic and every episode. All right, you guys stay safe. uh, thank an essential worker and support local businesses, and uh, go study, and leave a five-star review. Okay, bye.